1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we'll find ourselves this evening. And we're all only going to be looking at a few verses. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Heavenly Father, as we heard this morning and as we see tonight, you, O Lord, work powerfully through your word by your great grace to bring about faith, to bring about salvation through faith. And so we pray, O Lord, tonight that you would work in our midst in the same way, to bring about faith for those who might need to uh, come to that faith, but also to encourage the faith of those who have believed. Lord, we pray that you would so work in our hearts that we would be receptive to your word as we hear it preached tonight. We pray that you would so work in our minds that we would be uh, able to understand what it is that you have for us. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, if you uh, recall, or uh, just as a way of reminder, as we looked at Luke chapter 8, we saw the way that the Word of God works in our lives. We saw in that particular passage where Jesus told the parable of the sower, how the sower was a mere messenger. He was one who was simply spreading seed around a field. And uh, there in that, that seed, Jesus taught us, was representative of the Word of God. And so the sower is the one who is proclaiming the Word of God, who is simply traveling and sharing God's Word with those whom he encounters. We also saw that those who receive the Word in one way or another are a kind of soil. And there were all kinds of soil. Those who were rocky soil or those who were thorny soil or those who were no soil at all but just uh, the path. And they didn't receive the word, not, in, in, uh, not with faith, not with an abiding faith, an enduring faith. But then at the end of the parable we saw the good soil. The good soil was that which receives the word, holds it fast with a sincere faith, with a good and honest heart. And so, in so doing, with patience, it's a, it's a person who bears fruit person who bears fruit in his life as the word of God works. But all the while in this parable and in, real, in, in, in the reality that it represents, we understand that it's the word of God working by the power of God. Even in the midst of trial and difficulty, even against opposition, even uh, in the midst of comforts that might draw people away from faith, we see that God powerfully works to cause his word to bear fruit through the Christian. God is the one who brings us to faith through his regenerating work, causing us to be born again. 
And God is the one who sanctifies us and strengthens us in faith. We're going to see this same idea here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is going to speak about as he gives thanks to God for the work of the word in the lives of the Thessalonians. Notice how he begins the passage. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This rests on Paul's understanding and what we ought to understand of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Now let me read to you a quote from a well-known book by James Packer, J.I. Packer, called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's right at the beginning of the book. He writes these words, I do not intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in his world. There is no need, for I know that if you are a Christian, you believe this already. How do I know that? Because I know that if you are a Christian, you pray. And the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. In prayer, you ask for things and give thanks for things. Why? Because you recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have had already. And all the good that you hope for in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world. It is not in our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God. And will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from his hands. If this is true even of our daily bread, and the Lord's Prayer teaches us that it is, much more is it true of spiritual benefits. This is all luminously clear to us when we are actually praying. Whatever we may be betrayed into saying in argument afterward, in effect, therefore, what we do every time we pray is to confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. The very fact that a Christian prays is thus proof positive that he believes in the lordship of his God. I think that's very well put. We pray because we believe that God is sovereign. We pray because we know he is the only one who can meet all of our needs, both physical and spiritual. We believe in an infinite God, and that's what we see here at the beginning of this passage. We see that Paul is declaring his gratitude. He is thanking God. He's not thanking the Thessalonians, or he's not simply saying thank God as a kind of euphemism where he means I'm really happy that you Thessalonians have believed. He really is praying and thanking God for what has happened in the lives of the Thessalonians because he recognizes it didn't happen because Paul is such a great preacher and it didn't happen because he's so persuasive or because he's such an effective evangelist with such effective methods. It happened only because Almighty God so worked in the lives of the Thessalonians that he caused them to receive the word and hold it fast with an honest and good heart. So what we're seeing here is that the Thessalonians became an example of good soil. That good soil that we saw in the parable of the sower this morning. The Thessalonians are an example of this. We've seen Paul give thanks already in this letter. He opened the letter with the same kind of gratitude. In chapter 1, verse 2, he said, We give thanks to God always for all of you, 
constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. In chapter 1, he was looking primarily at the way in which the word of God caused the Thessalonians to act in a certain way towards Paul and towards other believers. Namely, by uh, causing their faith to work itself out with works of faith and by causing them to carry out a labor of love in the way that they cared for Paul and for Silvanus and for Timothy, and by causing them to become steadfast in their hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, he puts the focus on how they responded to God more directly. They, when they heard the word of God, preached by Paul, who was the sower in this case, who was the messenger, but only as a mediator, they recognized this is not Paul's words, not in the final and ultimate sense. These are not the words of a mere man. But here this messenger is conveying to us, really and truly, the very word of God. And that's what Paul gives thanks for. And it is and should be a great cause for gratitude in us. You see, it is one thing to labor in preaching and teaching God's word to, uh, in, a, in, a, in a, let's say, called a large field, drawing again on the imagery from the parable of the sower. Imagine you have a large field. It's one thing to labor in that field and, and have many people hearing and many people listening, but also to find that much of the soil in that field is not good soil. Or many of the people, that is to say, is they're hardened against the preaching of the word. They don't re- receive it as God's word. It's a hard labor. It's not a fun thing to do. But when people, even if the field is small, receive it as God's word, it is a great delight to a preacher. It's a great joy because you can explore the wonders of God's word in a way that's not really possible when people are resistant to it, when people reject the word. And at the end of the day, this is something that God works in the life of those who receive the word in this way. And it is a cause for rejoicing. The sooner that we recognize the sovereignty of God in our salvation, the sooner we will begin to thank God for his mighty work. It is a cause for rejoicing. It is something that should make us extremely grateful. I, I recently read this from a pastor in, uh, in Lansing. He wrote... That about predestination, which is a way of speaking of God's sovereignty in our salvation. Predestination is supremely offensive and the object of ridicule when not believed. Yet once seen and embraced, it becomes one of the sweetest and most cherished doctrines. You see, it's hard sometimes to be told that God's in control of all things. That none of us would have come to faith except if God had first worked in our lives to cause us to be born again so that we might respond to his word in faith. Because what it shows us is our moral inability. It shows us how incapable we are. And no one wants to hear that you can't do it. No one wants to hear someone say, you don't have what it takes. But the truth of the matter is, you don't have what it takes. And neither do I. 
None of us has the moral capacity, the moral ability on our own to embrace Christ by faith. And yet God in his grace so works in us that he causes us to receive and to understand his words. And that's a cause for great grace, or a cause for great thanks because of his great grace. That's why Paul directs his prayers of gratitude to God, thanking God constantly. It doesn't mean that he doesn't do anything other than pray with gratitude to God. It means that he persistently prays in this way, day by day, each passing day, as he remembered the Thessalonians in his prayers. He gave thanks to God for the work that he had done in their lives. And we also ought to thank God in this way. Now, this does not negate our agency and our responsibility. Let me try to help you uh, understand this. Imagine a line of infinite length. Infinity is hard uh, hard to comprehend, is it not? Imagine a line of infinite length. Now, try to draw in your mind a circle around that line that covers the whole... Well, you can't. You cannot, with that circle, comprehend that line. You see why infinity is so hard for a finite mind to understand. And yet our God is infinite. His wisdom is infinite. His knowledge is infinite. His power is infinite. So no matter what, whatever we do, God always knows the end from the beginning. God always is powerful to act or to refrain from acting. And a God of infinite might and infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge. When he acts or when he does not act, it always is in some sense an action. This helps us to understand how we can have agency and we can actually make real and genuine decisions and be responsible for our actions and yet also proclaim that God is indeed sovereign over all things, even our salvation. It does not mean that we suddenly grasp what it would be like to be infinite. But it does help us to understand why it's so hard to comprehend. And what we find when we begin to see this, see that God is infinite in his power and his knowledge and his wisdom, and how that that shows us his sovereignty in all things, is that as we trace the line in any of our actions or in in our coming to faith, we see that always we come back to the first cause being God. Think about how you came to faith in Christ. Certainly you can... You can tell the story, you can share the testimony. Somebody somewhere shared the gospel with you and you were persuaded. Either you were wondering about something and you about how to understand scripture or how to understand the gospel or how to make sense of your own sin and, and God's grace and someone explained it to you and you understood it and you believed it or you might have been resistant to it and then someone explained it in a new way or you, you heard it by, from someone on the radio or a preacher on TV or read it in the Bible, and you started to think from a different light, and you were persuaded to believe the gospel. You might think, I did that. I believed. I I came to the conclusion on my own or with the help of someone else. But if you keep tracing that line back, you'll see that the first and final cause is always God. Who sent the messenger? Who caused you to Uh, to, to, to have that change of mind, who so worked in your life to bring about all of the events that led to your salvation. You will always trace that line, if you trace it far enough, back to God as the first mover and the final mover.
He is the one who so works in our lives to bring about our salvation. Yet he uses means. He uses means to accomplish that end. When a person stands in the pulpit and says you must repent and believe the gospel and you hear that and you're struck by it and it it, it comes so strongly to you that you're shocked by it. That is a means that God uses to bring about the obedience of faith. It doesn't make him less sovereign. He's still sovereign over that. And yet he uses means that we respond to, to come to faith. And so we can recognize the role of a messenger. We can recognize even our role and what God has given us as a responsibility and a privilege to share the gospel with others. We can recognize that people have a responsibility to respond to the gospel in faith. And we have a responsibility to share the gospel with others and still acknowledge that God is the one who is due all thanks when someone responds to the word, when someone receives it with thanks. And so at the end of the day, we always direct our gratitude to him, thanking God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now Paul knows that the Thessalonians have accepted the word of God as just that, as what it really is, the word of God, because it has produced fruit in their lives. We saw that again, as I, as, as I noted in Luke chapter 8 this morning, as we looked at the parable of the sower. And in Luke chapter 8, if you remember how Jesus interpreted the good soil, in verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. And we can see the fruit, that patient fruitfulness that, that, that characterized the Thessalonians in the way that Paul describes them. Look back to chapter 1 and see how he described them. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here, similarly, he talks about uh, the, the basis for his trust and his belief that they have received the word and that it is at work in them. In verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. In other words, it's not that they, they said, well, what are they doing in the Judean churches? Let's just do everything that they're doing. What kind of music are they playing um, uh, what, what order of service are they using? No, the, the particular way in which they became imitators of the churches of Judea is that they endured persecution from their own countrymen in the exact same way as the churches in, in Judea were experiencing. They were being persecuted by people who were hostile to the gospel. And so it happened in Thessalonica. We've seen that in Acts chapter 17. How the people of their city, the rulers of their city, were stirred up against them. And how they brought Jason, who seems to be the host of one of these, uh, or of this house church in Thessalonica, they brought Jason before them. There in Acts chapter 17, this is what happened as they dragged him before the authorities. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so at some financial cost and some humiliation in the sight of his community, Jason endured difficulty from his own countrymen for the sake of the gospel. And yet they endured. They were steadfast in hope. They persisted in their faith and in their labor of love. And this is the kind of fruitfulness that the word produces in the life of a believer when God so works in their life to cause them to receive it in faith. So Paul knew because they had become imitators of the churches of God in Judea, the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, that they indeed had received the word and the word indeed was at work in them. Now Paul also has this lengthy uh, digression, if you will, in verse 15 and 16, where he speaks about the opposition that the, that the uh, Jews have shown towards the churches in Judea. He lists a number of ways in which they've opposed the Lord and his work. He says, Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as, to always, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is a difficult passage. Quite honestly, it's a difficult passage for, for interpreters. Because it strikes some in, the, in our modern times as we reflect on 2,000 years of history, especially the, uh, the last century and all of the, uh, all of the difficulties when we think about World War II and the Holocaust. And, and uh, we even reflect further back and think about things like the uh, Inquisition and all of the, kind of, uh, all of the anti-Semitic um, actions that have been taken in our world. That some read this and they wonder, well, what's going on here? This, this strikes uh, some commentators as an anti-Jewish polemic that is uncharacteristic of Paul. It's a bit more complex than this. Um, and we need to see this, uh, we need to see a fuller picture of Paul. He's a complex figure with a brilliant mind. We also need to see a fuller picture of the Jewish rejection of the gospel, not through the eyes of the 20th and 21st centuries, but through the eyes of the 1st century, what's going on in this context. And we need a clear understanding that we are no different. We are in the same boat until God shows his grace to us. So we ought not to interpret this as a kind of anti-Semitic polemic, as if it were written by someone in the uh, 20th century, but rather we should see it through uh, as, as something written by the hand of Paul, one who himself was Jewish and one who himself was an opponent of the people of God until God graciously intervened in his life. We can see it then as we think about this and we'll look closer at some of those passages that will give us that fuller picture as a cry for justice, as a cry for justice that is right. Speaking about a different passage, and actually in 2 Thessalonians, but in a way that's equally applicable to this text, D.A. Carson writes this about a text in 2 Thessalonians. And I'll read a lengthy passage if you'll forgive me. He's speaking about the concept of retribution, of divine retribution. And he says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed, and here he's quoting from 2 Thessalonians, revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. Now hear what D.A. Carson writes about that text. Many find the notion of retribution repugnant. This eye-for-an-eye theology, they say, does not reach the high level of the Christian gospel, where grace reigns and forgiveness displaces revenge. It is vindictive, petty, harsh, and utterly unworthy of those who follow Christ. The Christ who cries, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Surely this passage is simply an unworthy throwback to the more primitive stance of the Old Testament, they think. But this analysis will not do. It will not do even at the simple level of fairness. A number of years ago, a stunning case was tried before a British court. A British soldier, in a fit of rage, shot and killed his wife and their infant. The soldier did not plead insanity. Quite transparently, he was crushed by the guilt and shame of his own brutality and murderous rage. The judge finally acquitted him on the ground that he had already suffered enough. Carson asks, where is the justice in that? Where is the fairness? Where is there any flavor of what is right? Is there not something to be said for retribution? In fact, the Christian gospel is solidly based on some elementary notions of retribution. Where evil occurs, it must be paid back, or God himself is affronted. If God forever overlooks evil, ostensibly on the ground that he is loving and forbearing, is he not also betraying the fact that he is pathetically unconcerned about injustice? The truth is that every Christian who has thought long and hard about the cross begins to understand that God is not merely a stern dispenser of justice, not merely a lover who lavishly forgives, but the sovereign who is simultaneously perfect in holiness and perfect in love. His holiness demands retribution. His love sends his own son to absorb that retribution on behalf of others. The cross simultaneously stands as the irrefutable evidence that God demands retribution and cries out that it, it, that it is the measure of God's love. That is why, in the Christian view of things, forgiveness is never detached from the cross. In other words, forgiveness is never the product of love alone, still less of mawkish sentimentality. Forgiveness is possible only because there has been a real offense and a real sacrifice to offset that offense. But what if men and women reject that sacrifice? What if they insist on seeing themselves as the center of the universe and utterly refuse to acknowledge God as God? What if their whole life cries out, I'll do it my way? If God is God, there must still be retribution or the entire moral order collapses. If we refuse to acknowledge that we deserve retribution, refuse to accept the forgiveness available, because out of God's indescribable love, Jesus suffered retribution in order to reconcile sinners like us to God, then we must face the retribution ourselves. That lengthy quote, I think, is quite helpful, and I, I don't think I could have said it better myself, which is why I read it. It helps us to see that the sentiment that motivates what Paul is saying here is rooted in a desire for God to vindicate his word and to vindicate his work. His own countrymen, his own people, had stood against the gospel. 
They stood against the grace of God. They worked against it. They were hindering us, Paul says, from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. Should there not be vindication for that? Should there not be a just judgment? Paul in no way would say that they were so far beyond the grace of God that there was no possibility of repentance. This is where seeing Paul's complex character helps us and we we're helped by understanding his own history. Paul himself had been a great persecutor of the church. He tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15.9. How undeserving he was of the grace of God. Because he had stood as a persecutor of the church. How undeserving he was to be called an apostle. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 he writes these words. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul understood the grace that he had received. So again, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in his letter to Timothy, he wrote these words in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul understood that there was a time when he had stood on the other line, the other side of what he's saying here, as the one who is deserving of God's wrath, the one who is deserving of God's judgment, and it was only by God's grace that God had intervened in his life to turn him, to bring him to faith. He's not here speaking hypocritically. He's simply acknowledging the painful historical pattern that played out among his people. We spoke about that this morning. In Isaiah chapter 6, we reflected on how Isaiah was sent to a people to preach a message to them, and yet he was told, they're not going to hear. They're not going to see. They're not going to receive it. Their hearts are going to be hard. They're going to be made dull against this, and this will be part of God's judgment against them because they've rejected the word of the Lord one too many times. And finally the Lord in his judgment has allowed them to be hardened. Allowed them to be blinded in unbelief. Because of their idolatry. And their refusal to repent. But always the gospel is being held forth. And they're being called to turn and to repent and believe. And yet always only a remnant. Only a small group would do it. We saw this morning how this continued up to Jesus' day. And we'll continue to see this in the, in the uh, Gospel of Luke as we continue on Sunday mornings. Later in Luke chapter 11, we'll come to a passage where Jesus pronounces woes. He pronounces woes on the scribes and on the Pharisees and on the lawyers. And there in Luke 11 verse 49, he'll say, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, 
who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Jesus recognized in those woes and declared in those woes that his own countrymen, they would not accept the gospel by and large. Many would, but many would stand opposed, stridently opposed, persecuting the apostles just as they persecuted the Lord, just as they put the Lord to, uh, to death just as their fathers did to the prophets. Even in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was about to be stoned, as he came to the conclusion of his sermon, he declared the same thing, challenging them to repent, challenging them to turn, to turn from the ways of their fathers, saying these words in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. And what did they do when they were confronted with those words, when they were challenged to repent and believe? They pick up, picked up stones and killed the man who spoke them. And as I pointed out earlier, Paul was the ringleader of it all. Paul stood there and approved of it. He was just like them until God intervened in his life graciously to cause him to turn and repent and believe. And so Paul, though he can write these words here, can also in Romans chapter 9 write words where he expresses his deep anguish and yearning that his countrymen would turn and repent and believe and find salvation. And there in Romans chapter 9, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ I am not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Just as Paul prayed unceasingly with gratitude for what God was doing in the churches among the Thessalonians and others, he grieved unceasingly in his heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul yearned that they might turn and receive the grace of God. And yet, as the following chapters there in Romans, in Romans 9-11 through 11 show, is Paul also understood the purposes of God. That at that time in history, it was God's purpose to judge. It was God's purpose to vindicate his word and his work by allowing a hardening to come upon the Jewish people during that time. It's a sobering reality. It's a difficult reality. But it should not move us to any kind of hatred. It should not move us to use passages like this to justify hatred toward the Jewish people. For Paul would show us, in, again in Romans 9-11, through 11, that there's nothing that would keep us except the grace of God from being in the very same boat. And we can even see that indicated in this passage. Notice how Paul describes the experience of the Thessalonians. In verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For... You suffered the same things from your own countrymen 
as they did from the Jews. It wasn't just the Jewish people who were standing against the purpose of God. It was also the, the, the Greeks of Thessalonica and the Roman people more generally. And people all over the world were standing against the purposes of God in the same way. And so persecuting their own countrymen who were coming to faith. That's what Jewish Christians were experiencing at the hand of their countrymen. And that's what these Gentile converts to Christ were experiencing at the hand of their own countrymen. And Paul would tell us that if we become proud and we become arrogant in all of this and think that somehow we're better or more deserving, it's not very hard, it's not very much work for the Lord to cut us off from this branch using the symmetry of a branch and to graft them back in. We ought not to become hardened in this, become proud in this, but rather we ought to look at this reality as a sobering reality that is a demonstration of God's justice in the world whereby he vindicates his work and his word. And we ought to acknowledge it as something that is right and just in the working out of God's perfect wisdom and providence. And yet, we also ought to yearn with the same yearning that Paul had for his countrymen that God would pour out his grace toward them. Look at the way that he speaks about what they did, particularly there in verse 16. How they hindered Paul and his companions from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Then he turns there and he says, So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This idea of filling up the measure of their sins is something we see in Genesis where uh, God spoke to Abraham about the Amorites that he was going to bring judgment upon them but not yet, not until they'd filled up the measure of their sins. We see it also in the book of Daniel how God spoke to Daniel that he would bring a culmination uh, to all things, that he would bring about the fulfillment of all things after, uh, after the wickedness of the world had been brought to its completion, had been filled up. Somehow in God's calculation and his perfect wisdom, he determines when the measure is full. And he recognizes when the judgment, when, when, when the time is ripe for judgment. It's not something that we can figure out in our wisdom, but it's something that God determines in his perfect wisdom. And even Jesus would speak in Matthew 23 about how those who stood against him and against God's prophets and God's messengers were filling up the measure of their father's sin. And so this language points to the fact that judgment will surely come. And then Paul says, but wrath has come upon them at last. Or maybe a, a, a way to, to think about this is think about someone overtaking another person in the course of a pursuit. Jesus uses the same language when he, when he speaks about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has come upon you or overtaken you. If you can imagine uh, someone being pursued by another person, that person overtakes him. And he starts to see that he's now been caught in the race or he's been passed in the race. And God's wrath has now overtaken them. Maybe not so much in, in the sense of uh, finally it's happened, but um, rather unto the end. Or, or uh, you know, as uh, Paul is not saying that, that they, they've gotten got to what's coming to them, but that God's verdict is final in that sense. Wrath has come upon them at last. It is a vindication of God's word and his work, which was 
firmly rejected by the people of Paul's day, by the Jewish people of Paul's day, not by all, but by many. Nevertheless, I, I want to strongly encourage you to yearn with the same sentiment that Paul expressed in Romans 9 as well. When I was candidate, candidating here, I was asked questions about how we might as a church bless Israel. And the answer I gave then is the answer I give today. By praying. By praying for them that they would believe. By praying for the Jewish people that they would receive the gospel and repent and believe in turn. And the same answer is true. I'll give it again and again. God's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is like a boomerang. It came out from Jerusalem to the world. But God has indicated that in his purposes, it will come back around. And somehow in the mystery of God's plan, through the gospel going forth to the Gentiles, his people will become jealous with a, with a good and holy jealousy. They'll yearn for that kind of relationship that their fathers once enjoyed. And in the mystery of the gospel, many will turn. And we ought to pray for that end. That's how we can bless them. That not by praying that wrath would overtake them again and again, but by praying that God's grace would overtake them once again. Yearn for their salvation even as Paul did. Not as one who could offer his own life. He rhetorically said, I would even do this, but it was not possible. But rather praying that God in his grace would bring them back into a saving relationship with him through Christ Jesus, who is their Messiah and ours. And as we do this and pray to that end for them, let us also remember God's grace in our lives. Let us be a people who never cease, like Paul, who never cease to give thanks to God for what he has done in our midst and what he is doing even now. So let me close then by expressing my own gratitude. I titled this sermon The Preacher's Gratitude because Paul here expresses his thanks to God for the Thessalonians and their reception of the word. But I also want to express my thanks to God. There are large fields, as I suggested earlier, and yet large, there are large fields that are full of all kinds of soil. Many of them aren't very receptive to the word. And for all my days, I would be, rather be Sowing in a small field that is full of good soil. I feel that I, am, I have that here. And I thank God for that. I thank God that you all hunger for his word. That you hunger to hear it. That you hunger to, to understand it. To know it. And to not just be hearers of it. But to be doers of it also. Let us all be that kind of people. Who thank God for this. For what he's doing in our lives what he's doing in the lives of others. And may we pray that he would give us more opportunity to be a part of his work of sowing seed, even as we've received the word and planted in our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, at the end of the day, we recognize that it's not the giftedness of the preacher that makes the message effective whether my words are coherent or whether they're scattered and not thought out, whether any of our words are coherent or scattered, at the end of the day, if it's your word that we're proclaiming, and you are the one who makes it effective as you will, 
So we thank you. We praise you. And we ask that you would work through your word. That you would cause it to have its effect in our lives. So that we might be indeed hearers and doers of your word. So that we might be good soil. Who hold it fast for all our days. No matter what we face in this life. Comfort or trial. Difficulty or peace. May we be a people who hold it fast. People who endure with patience. People who are fruitful as you work in us to produce the fruit that you've ordained for us. And may we never cease to give you thanks for all of this. May we never be a people who trust in ourselves or what we've brought to the table, knowing that in the end, we've brought nothing to the table that can commend us to you or that can make your work effective. And yet in your great grace, you work through us in any case. So we praise you and thank you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.